Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 9. With Sebastian's silent acquiescence, I left the beach house early. It was a week to the day since Robbie's party in town and the unsettling events it had heralded. The perplexing deaths of the American tourists, far from yet concurrent with the party's final hour and improbably implicating the reggae artist, had consumed me every minute since. There still remained more questions than answers, but I was now heading south on a quest that I hoped would finally solve another mystery, the origin of the Grigri mischief that had also begun that Saturday night. First, there had been a message tucked inside a snail shell, an almost childlike warning deliberately placed to await me. Thereafter, the menace had grown incrementally, Sebastian's discovery of a kitchen knife symbolically impaling a fruit, and finally the repugnant spectacle of a dead rat intentionally deposited in our rice. Whether one believed in island sorcery or not, Grigri was an ancient craft of psychological intimidation that had lost none of its mystical potency and remained distressingly effective. I turned off the coast road at Oswalo and took the steep route to Montagna Pose. Its tight turns snaked through hillside groves of cassava and breadfruit, past ramshackle clusters of tin-roofed dwellings of smallholders and their makeshift roadside tables bearing pyramids of produce proudly laid out to catch the eye of passers-by. At the final hairpin, giving way to a public bus swaying on its precarious downhill slalom, I reached the road's summit, a place for pause that Montagna Pose's ancient name richly deserved. Before me opened a panorama of cerulean ocean. Tiny fishing pirogues bobbed on a glimmering horizon, while immediately beneath me, jet skis streaked across a placid bay, immaculately framed by two lush headlands by beckoning hands. Montagna Pose Prison commands an even more enviable view, concealed from tourists' sight, perched high on the hilltop overlooking the road. It lies behind chain-link fences crenellated with razor wire, a jumbled eyesore of jail blocks, surrounded by corrugated iron watchtowers on wooden stilts, from where imported Nepalese guards, armed with assault rifles, survey a once notoriously permeable perimeter. It's a penitentiary under perpetual construction, fashioned imperfectly but speedily by sweating inmates bearing trowels and pushing wheelbarrows of cement. The fresh structures springing up disoriented me whenever invited by a press summons from the jail's dynamic new superintendent. Roy Bassian, sporting military fatigues, a dark beret and sunglasses, like the mercenary leader of a daring rebel coup in some remote African Republic, greeted me with his usual bonhomie and led me through security to the administration block. Is she here already? I asked. She's always punctual, Roy replied. 
But it's pretty hard for a first-time offender with a background like hers at her time of life in a place like this. He gestured towards a small interview room normally set aside for inmates meeting their lawyers. You'll have more privacy here, he said, retreating to leave the two of us alone. The Comtesse Marie-Alise de Chalice was standing at a barred window, her back towards me. The hair that had once been so severely dyed black and heavily coiffured was now a tangled white bird's nest. A faded t-shirt sagged from her bony shoulders and beneath it she was wearing voluminous shorts, the jailbird look completed with flip-flops. You're dumbstruck, aren't you, Patrick? She said without turning. You must forgive my rather shabby appearance, but I like to dress for the occasion. Are they taking good care of you, Marie-Alise? I said. She moved away from the window and took a seat across a low table from me. I have no complaints, she replied. I may be in my ninth decade, but I know how to rub along. I can perfectly well remember those drafty dormitories of my childhood when I was sent away to boarding school in England. Those long, shivering winters. Such formative experiences are never forgotten. Perhaps you remember them too. The inedible food, the scratchy blankets. A fine preparation for prison. I'm glad you accepted my request to meet, I said. And surprised. Why wouldn't I? I so rarely get visitors. My family wants nothing to do with me, as you can probably imagine. They are not, let us say, a very forgiving brood. Oh, yes, your little discoveries caused us all quite a headache, no question about it. But the truth was always there to be found by someone. It happened to be you, a nosy reporter. But I haven't come to probe you about that, I said. Nor to seek absolution. There's something else on my mind. Do you know much about Grigri? Oh, how delightful. Have you really come all this way for that? She smiled enigmatically and gazed around the room. I'm asking because Sebastian and I have recently been receiving, well, a variety of pretty bizarre deliveries. Symbols of traditional island witchcraft, we believe. We've no idea who sent them or why, other than to intimidate us. The Comtesse cackled scornfully. Oh, wouldn't that be exquisite? An old witch like me casting her terrifying spells. How perfectly I suit that role. So can you tell me anything about a snail shell, a knife, a dead rat? Because, Marie-Alise, if this is some campaign of retribution, it's tiresome, but it doesn't terrify me. Patrick, she said, meeting my eye calmly. If I'd wanted to take my revenge against you and Sebastian, I could have thrown you out of the cottage, couldn't I? Simply served you notice to pack your things and leave. It's still my property, on my estate. Wouldn't that be far simpler and far more distressing than sending you rodents, mollusks and kitchen cutlery? But I've allowed you to remain, haven't I? You are still my tenants. Who mentioned kitchen cutlery? I said. I didn't specify what kind. So you must understand, she said, and understand clearly. I hear things, and it's true that I can still reach far beyond the bars of a prison cell. 
and make no mistake, so can others. This is a very small country with unique methods of settling scores. That's not exactly a denial, is it? I reply. I'm content to let you linger in doubt, said the Countess. But let me warn you, the price of meddling in matters that don't concern you may be very high. The Countess's boast of knowing the island's intimate workings was not an empty one. Like many Seishawa, she had a keen ear for gossip and a quick eye. Well, perhaps you can offer some insight on another matter that I'm meddling with, I said. The deaths of those American tourists that you've doubtless heard about. I set out the details of the case, and she listened intrigued, pondering the list of suspects, muttering dismissively at several of the more disputable points. At length, she drew a slow nasal breath and pouted before delivering her verdict. Well, it's perfectly obvious, isn't it? She said. You've been going up blind alleys. Surely you realize a killer or killers must have motive, means and opportunity. In each case, your suspects have one or two of each, but not all. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have all three. Perhaps you've missed something. But you have approached this, if I may say, with giddy blindness. You've given all your attention to individuals orbiting those unfortunate sisters. But perhaps they were never the killer's intended target. Did that thought ever occur to you? I suggest you broaden your search. Inexplicably, I'd fallen once more under her spell. Though steeped in values belonging to a thankfully vanishing era, the Countess had lost none of her curious allure, an enchantress who was cunning with her powers, though not without some tenderness or mercy. Frustratingly, I left with the Grigri matter unresolved, but we agreed to keep in touch. For a while, I sat in the moke, contemplating the Countess's suggestion that my investigation had taken a wrong turning. I was about to leave when one of Say TV's dented minivans rumbled slowly into the car park, stirring up a whirlwind of dust in the gravel as it pulled up next to me. I exchanged greetings with the crew, catching sight of Bella Caddo hanging back and less eager to shoot the breeze. She informed me testily that they were shooting a news feature on restorative justice, our frosty recent encounter over coffee apparently still etched on her memory. You have a habit of finding people's weak spots, she said, and you don't seem to realize how much offense it causes. It's not the Seshawa way. However, I've thought about some of what we discussed, you may like to know, and I'm now taking some steps to address my personal challenges. Perhaps you should do the same. I'm glad for you, Bella, I said. Perhaps I will, she went on. And I've thought about that night at Catenoir and my conduct. You seem pretty sure that I had some vendetta against those poor women, but did you ever think to ask why their friend, that loud-mouthed American man, was outside their door at midnight? He'd left the bar long before them and was staying in another villa. Instead of pointing your suspicion at me, maybe you should be looking at him. Maybe she was right, 
It was a view that I couldn't yet dismiss, despite the Contessa's exhortations, and I wanted to see Dougie Summers again to confirm a suspicion. The Contessa had awakened a nagging possibility. As I drove away from the prison, I believed the mystery was finally unfolding of how the American tourists had died and by whose hand. All I needed was the proof. With no time to waste, I descended from the mountain and was bowling along the coast towards town when a text message pinged my phone. It was from Ras Robbie. It read, The cops set me free. I owe you everything. So I put an open tab for you at Catonoir. Dinner with champagne or me tonight. Enjoy. At Orion Mall, I called Claudette to tell her the news and canvass her thoughts. I'd say they were close as brothers, she said, but they're very different, Robbie and Rich. Some rivalry, perhaps. Robbie's done much better than Rich. He's made a fortune from his music. Rich? Well, I doubt a local chef earns that much. He left the party before us, Claudette, I said. It was the midnight chimes of the clock tower that prompted him to leave. I remember it clearly. He told us he was going back to Catanois that night to check some restaurant figures. But the clock was running fast. It means he must have excused himself much earlier than we thought, soon after eleven. Claudette was silent for a moment. Oh my, she said. Are you saying... I'm saying he's hiding something. He had time to get to Catanois by 11.30, which left a whole half hour before the women were found dead. But wait, she said. That doesn't make sense. The hotel staff claimed they saw a Rastafarian in the bar with the women, and Rich doesn't look like that. People working with food have their hair cut short. Rich has a buzz cut, not dreadlocks. That's right, I said. But imagine if he did. Those two brothers are in every other physical sense identical. Would you easily be able to tell him and Robbie apart? But why would Rich deliberately want to frame his own twin brother, she said. And even if you're right, if he was the killer, how could he have done it? There was no evidence of a break-in at the guest villa, no sign of a struggle. I had a theory, but I needed to test it. I'm not saying he killed them. There's something I need to buy here in town, but I need a favour, I said. Check out some background information about Rich for me, using his real name, Norville Nisset. Find out anything you can about his time as a student at Nottingham University in the UK in the late 1990s. There'll be an alumnus group. And while you're searching, look up what you can from medical websites about the clinical interactions of codeine, morphine and alcohol. And you, said Claudette, what will you be doing while I do your dirty work? I smiled. I'll make it up to you, I promise, I said. I spent the better part of the afternoon with my laptop on our veranda, the dogs snoozing on their tethers at my feet. Prompted by the Contessa's clear-sighted suggestion that I'd been heading down dead ends, I switched my attention to others who'd been present at Catanois the previous weekend and started punching names into search boxes. 
There was a report in the Wall Street Journal concerning the collapse of a hospitality investment group in Jakarta. U.S. law firm sued over Far East Hotel Group acquisition, read the headline. The story detailed how the expansion of a boutique hotel chain in Indonesia had been scuppered when the buyers, based in the UK, had been unable to complete the takeover of a property portfolio. Funds raised from banks and remortgaging their home in Britain had disappeared after exchange of contracts, along with the investor's Jakarta-based American lawyer, leaving the group's directors facing total financial ruin. Next, I probed the professional background of Antoine Lavigne, the French Seychellois general manager of Cateau Noir. I needed to understand why a hotelier, who would have known perfectly the paramount importance of privacy and discretion that his wealthy guests expected, had betrayed that guiding principle of his trade. He'd orchestrated a journalist's intrusion into the private grief of Dougie Summers, the American women's travelling companion. Scrolling through Antoine's LinkedIn profile, a hunch was swiftly rewarded with confirmation that prior to taking up his latest role in Mahe, he'd risen steadily through assorted lower management roles at luxury boutique hotels in the Far East, latterly as the residence manager of a small property in Jakarta. Finally, I picked up an email from Claudette, containing details that she'd gleaned about the brief and incomplete Nottingham University career of Robbie's twin brother, Rich, under his real name, Norville Nisset. She'd also managed to find information, written in helpful layman's terms, about the potentially lethal consequences of mixing codeine, morphine and alcohol, and those most likely to succumb to such a cocktail. With all the information assembled, and each detail of exactly what had transpired now perfectly clear to me, I phoned Chief Inspector Dugas, setting out what I knew. He was reluctant to entertain more vague theories involving the clock tower, he said, but with the promise that I'd send him all the evidence to aid his inquiry, an investigation with few good leads that was making embarrassingly slow progress, he agreed to study it. In the meantime, I told Sebastian to raid his wardrobe. We would be going out for a celebratory dinner that evening, one that promised to be quite unforgettable. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.